so John Payton, as I said, uh, born in Scotland, and he, among maybe a few people under the sovereignty of God, can be credited for the reason why I think today 90% of Vanuatu is Christian. Uh, when 150 years ago, there was absolutely no Christian witness, or about 170 years ago, there was no Christian witness whatsoever. And there are three particular themes that as I was uh, studying him, I, I thought there are these themes that stick out from his life. And that is, number one, Christ-exalting courage. Number two, devastating brokenness. And number three, spirit-empowered perseverance. Christ-exalting courage, devastating brokenness, spirit-empowered perseverance. Peyton was born in Dumfries, Scotland, which is the lower part of Scotland, about an hour and a half south of where I was in Edinburgh a few years ago in 1824. And he grew up in a Christian family. And we don't know a lot about his early life but he grew up in seemingly a healthy Christian family. And by his early 20s, he was a city missionary in Glasgow. And by all accounts, he had a really successful ministry in Glasgow, particularly among a lower socioeconomic demographic. So among the working class people of Glasgow. And he was running uh, theology classes among the lower class and hundreds of unchurched people were coming to his theology classes every single week. And uh, not much is recorded about his family, but we know that his parents were committed Christians and they had specifically consecrated him, which is to set him apart to the Lord as a missionary of the cross at a very young age. And after Peyton had finally made the decision to cross over to the other side of the world to reach unreached people groups, he then found out what his parents had done. And his parents had said to him, we initially feared, so this is them writing after he'd made the decision, we initially feared to bias you, but now we must tell you why we praise God for the decision to which you have been led. Your father and mother had laid you upon the altar, their firstborn, to be consecrated, if God saw fit, as a missionary of the cross. And it has been their constant prayer that you might be prepared, qualified, and led to this very decision. And we pray with all our heart, the Lord may accept your offering, long spare you, and give you many souls from the heathen world for your hire. Uh, his father, in particular, had a huge impact on his life and there's wonderful stories that Peyton gives writing in his diary later on um, one of which he often recalls his father praying um, hearing his father praying in, in his uh, prayer closet um, late at night but also with the family and John Peyton records um, in some of his writings how much my father's prayers at this time impressed me I can never explain nor could any stranger understand. When, on his knees and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he poured out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus and for every personal and domestic need, we all felt as if in the presence of the living Saviour and learned to know and love him as a divine friend. 
I thought how wonderful it is when parents raise their children, not only in the ways of the Lord and teach them their ways, but when they model what faithfulness looks like and when they model what, what prayer looks like and what intimacy with the Lord looks like, when they can actually model that such that their child develops a hunger for the God that they, are, that they see their parents seeking. Uh, this environment led Peyton to be completely sold out for the gospel of Christ amongst unreached people groups, amongst those who do not know it. And although, as I said, he had a very fruitful ministry in Glasgow, uh, something burned within him for the completely unreached peoples. And he had a right distinction between um, places similar to like Canberra now, where there are many people who do not know Jesus, yet there is obviously a gospel witness and, and a presence, um, as opposed to areas of the world where there is either no Christian witness at all, or there is no local church strong enough to actually um, spread out the gospel seed. And Peyton's heart burned for those people. And astonishingly, Peyton faced tremendous opposition from Christians with his desire to actually go over and reach unreached peoples. Um, a minister of the church that he was attending in Glasgow tried to persuade him to stay in Glasgow, not to go over to cannibals, uh, not to go over for uncertainty when there is certainty here, not to leave a fruitful ministry. The minister actually said, this is Peyton recording. He says, the minister said to me, if I left my post, then those now attending my classes and meetings might be scattered and many of them would probably fall away. And that I was leaving certainty for uncertainty, work in which God had made me grateful, greatly useful for work in which I might fail to be useful and only throw away my life amongst cannibals which is some classic spiritual blackmail, if I've ever heard it, to, to spread that seed. And in struggling with this opposition, Peyton actually said, the opposition was so strong from nearly all, and many of them warm Christian friends, that I was sorely tempted to question whether I was carrying out the divine will or only some headstrong wish of my own. This also caused me much anxiety and drove me close to God in prayer which as a side note, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful assuring sign that, that if we face that kind of opposition, we're not assured that we won't face opposition, but that it drives us to prayer. And that's a helpful um, assurance that we can have that we're not being headstrong, but that we are seeking to know the Lord's will. And so it's driving us to prayer. Uh, one particular critic, a guy named Mr. Dixon, was so shocked that Peyton would try and reach uncivilized cannibals that he actually said to Peyton, you will be eaten by cannibals. And I love the response that Peyton said to Mr. Dixon. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the ground, there to be eaten by worms. <laughs> I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. 
What a wonderful statement to say that you, we're going to be eaten by something anyway. And whatever happens, the Lord will resurrect our bodies in the sight of our risen Redeemer. Uh, I believe that this opposition that Peyton <coughs> faced was absolutely God-ordained, as Peyton believed as well. But it was particularly God's refining work in sharpening the convictions that Peyton had about reaching the unreached in order to persevere when he was over there. Because we will see the incredible difficulty that Peyton went through on the island of Aniwa, which is an island of Vanuatu. And had he not gone through the challenges of uh, facing outrageous opposition from sometimes well-meaning, sometimes not so well-meaning Christians, over there and actually having to stand firm upon the convictions that he believed from the word. Had he not gone through those challenges, I don't know if he would have then persevered in the challenges that he had when he faced uh, cannibals in the New Hebrides. And so it's a powerful reminder for us when we are living faithfully to God's word uh, that we will feel the pressure of others pulling us away from that, and that can be God's refining work in us. So in 1858, Peyton and his wife arrive on the island of Tanna in New Hebrides. And as I said, the New Hebrides are modern-day Vanuatu, a chain of about 80 islands that stretch 800 kilometers or so. And the first missionaries there were John Williams and James Harris. On November 20. Uh, 1839, they arrived, first Christians to New Hebrides within minutes, killed and eaten by cannibals. So not a successful early mission. A few years after that, some more missionaries are sent and within a few months, so they last a few months, but within a few months they are driven off the island and they return home. But in 1848, so almost 10 years after the first missionaries were killed and eaten by cannibals, uh, God began to open the hearts of some on the island of Anetium. And by 1854, so six years after that and almost 16 years after the first missionaries tried to arrive, it was said that about 3,500 savages threw away their idols renouncing their heathen customs and avowing themselves to be worshippers of the true Jehovah God. So there had been this wonderful work of the Lord where cannibals had then uh, thrown away their idols and they were worshipping Jesus Christ. So there is an established Christian witness on some of the islands, but as I said, there are 80 islands in the New Hebrides and it's not like they're doing day trips to an island 150 years ago. Um, they're mainly staying isolated from each other. So there are many more people groups that are unreached. And Peyton, uh, while he is over there now, he intends to head to Aniwa, where there is no Christian witness at all. So this is the situation. So Peyton uh, heads over, and not long after arriving, Peyton, who came over with his wife of only a year or two, uh, she gives birth to their first child. She was pregnant on the way over and it's a wonderful thrill for them. He records, you know, their island exile being filled with joy immediately. Uh, but three weeks after the birth of his first child, Peyton's wife dies. She uh, is terribly ill for a week and then dies. And two weeks after that, 
his only child dies. So he heads over to the other side of the world um, and immediately after arriving, his wife, his closest companion dies and then their son and Peyton buries his wife and son next to each other and he records this. Let those who have ever passed through any similar darkness as of midnight feel for me. As for all others, it would be more than vain to try to paint my sorrows. But despite this, amazingly, Peyton perseveres and he reaches the island of Aniwa. And for four years, he sees no conversions and he is constantly faced with death threats. I was saying earlier today um, to someone I can't recall, but um, Peyton is uh, this man who has brought things like modern medicine and he, he is equipped in um, to administer medicine um, but he's hated by the islanders but they realize that he has something to offer so it's like kind of sometimes half-hearted attempts to kill him but they're sort of realizing that he has actually something valuable to offer but he's really um, just mocked a lot of the time and uh, there are many sincere attempts to take his life and burn his house down but he's basically just faced with tremendous opposition but still has to provide care and support to the very people who are trying to kill him, which sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? Um, he has one faithful Christian named Abraham who was a native that was converted on another island before Peyton came. And Abraham becomes his faithful companion. But to give a picture into the difficulties he faced, let me just read a few accounts, um, first-hand accounts from Peyton's life during those early years. He says, our continuous danger caused me now often to sleep with my clothes on that I might start at a moment's warning. He describes how he's, he had a dog as well who would often bark if people were coming and Peyton would be dressed and ready to just flee as soon as the people came. He says, my enemies seldom slackened their hateful designs against my life, however calmed or baffled for the moment. Um, and listen to, as he's describing the difficulty, listen as well to the God perspective that Peyton has as he's recording this. He's, he gives this account of a wild chief followed me around for four hours with his loaded musket. And though directed towards me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him and attended to my work as if he had not been there, fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me till my allotted task was finished. Imagine doing your work for four hours and someone's there with a loaded gun right at you. And you have no idea how crazy they are when their finger might just slip a little bit and kill you. And he continues and just trusts that the Lord will let him finish his task or take him home when his task is done. He says of another time, once when, when natives in large numbers were assembled at my house, a man furiously rushed on me with his axe but a chief snatched a spade with which I had been working and dexterously defended me from instant death. Life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. So imagine making the, the three-month trip over to the other side of the world with your wife, your pregnant wife, losing your wife and then losing your first and only child. Um, he already has little to no support from the sending people. It was really him heading over um, on his own with a conviction and then facing even more opposition on the ground. 
Who would persevere in this? Who would persevere through this? But by God's grace, Peyton did. And after four years, he finally began to see hearts opening to the gospel. Uh, by the time Peyton died, it is said that the whole island of Aniwa was converted to Christ. And Peyton would write many decades later, I claimed Aniwa for Jesus. And by the grace of God, Aniwa now worships at the Savior's feet. These are the very cannibals that were trying to kill him. And he persevered and now they worship at the Savior's feet. We have limited accounts of the actual conversions, though there are some, and I'd love to share them um, later. I didn't include them in this, but we have limited accounts because Peyton, who wrote an autobiography later on, uh, mainly records all of the difficulties leading up to it. And he doesn't record a lot about the actual conversions. And I believe that this is mostly so that Peyton could stir up an affection for other people. The reason he writes his autobiography is not to glamorize it in any way, but to strike a desire within other people to join in on the same mission of reaching the lost. And I believe that Peyton wants to do it for the glory of God by communicating it through a clear lens of the cost of discipleship of not giving any romanticized view of not to um, be too derogatory, but like a, you know, two week short term mission trip to the Philippines where it's, you know, lovely, um, a tropical area and you get to do a little bit of mission work, but then you come home to comfortable Australia. He, he's not trying to do that at all. He's trying to paint this very clear picture of the cost involved in this but of how absolutely worthy it is of of all of our lives so Peyton believed that his experience was absolutely god ordained in order to stir the hearts of many others to partake in this arduous and painful work with absolute zeal and satisfaction because christ is worthy of every single soul to to worship at his feet and later on in his life, Peyton records on the difficulties of the first years. And he says this, which backs up everything that, that I was just saying. Often, while passing through the perils and defeats of my first four years in the mission field, I wondered why God permitted such things. But on looking back now, I clearly perceived that the Lord was thereby preparing me for doing and providing materials to accomplish the best work of all my life, namely the kindling of the heart of Australian Presbyterianism with a living affection for these islanders of their own southern seas. That work and all that may spring from it in time and eternity never could have been accomplished by me, but for, the first, but for first the sufferings and then the story of my Tanner enterprise. So he wholeheartedly believed that the tremendous suffering that he went through was God ordained to eventually stir the hearts of Australians um, since Vanuatu is in our southern seas uh, to persevere through similar struggles, to persevere through um, constant uh, with death constantly facing you and everything leading up to that, to, to persevere through it for Christ's name to be magnified in the convert, conversion of lost people. 
Um, so Peyton very much understood his life as a tiny little piece that would hopefully kindle the hearts of many more people to join in on this work. And he was absolutely clear on the cost involved in this. He said, my heart often says within itself, when, when will men's eyes at home be opened? When will the rich and the learned renounce their shallow frivolities and go to lie amongst the poor, the ignorant, the outcast and the lost and write their eternal fame on the souls by them blessed and brought to the Savior? Those who have tasted this highest joy, the joy of the Lord, will never again ask, is life worth living? I love that. Those who have actually tasted this will never again ask, is life worth living? They'll never again ask that if we join in on this redemptive work that God is doing, we will never ask why. We will understand why. So Peyton very much saw his role as a tiny piece in a cosmic puzzle that God was putting together to stir the hearts of many more to head to the Aniwas of the world, the other areas of the world where there is no Christian witness to make Christ known. And I want to finish by drawing... Two conclusions and two applications for us uh, very briefly from Peyton's life. So the first conclusion, a high view of God's sovereignty fuels mission and breeds perseverance. A high view of God's sovereignty fuels mission and breeds perseverance. Peyton was an unashamed Calvinist. He wrote about that. And for him, this rightly meant a wholehearted belief that God can and will change the hearts of men that he is absolutely sovereign over salvation. So he can and will change the hearts of men, regardless of their resistance and regardless of our abilities. What a wonderful comfort that is. And this is what fueled his desire to reach the unreached. His high view of God's sovereignty in salvation not only led him to realize that God is sovereign over every single person. So like as Abraham Kuyper said, uh, Christ reigns over every square inch of this world. There is not one square inch of this world that the risen Christ does not claim mine. And so we go and we claim every square inch of this world for the glory of Christ. Um, but he also had a greater confidence that salvation would come precisely because it's the work of God, not because he has anything to do with it apart from what God is doing through him. So he says, Oh, Jesus, to thee alone be all the glory. Thou hast the key to unlock every heart that thou hast created. He understood that Christ alone has the key to unlock the hearts. This also greatly comforted him. So that fuels his mission, but it also breeds perseverance because it comforts him through devastation, through loss and affliction. So after his wife and son died, if you remember within a few weeks of arriving, Peyton said, feeling immovably assured that my God and father was too wise and loving to err in anything that he does or permits, I looked up to the Lord for help and struggled on in his work. What a bold thing to say, to, to say like, my father is too good to, to be wrong in anything that he does. Even if he takes my wife and my only child. He is good and, and I will look to him for help. And he doesn't put a fake smile on. He's totally open about the struggle, the devastation, but he perseveres. 
when he was being hunted by natives, uh, he, he was, it seems quite funny reading it, he had to hide up in a bush in a tree for like a whole night and he just hung out in the tree for, for the whole night. And he wrote about it in his diary later. He said, my heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us without the permission of Jesus Christ, who is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. She said, I, I, I am effectively immortal until God says my life is up. And, and that's it. And that's why I can have perseverance. Second conclusion, afflictions are God's means to refine us and comfort us. The tragedies and the difficulties that we go through are God's means to refine us and to comfort us. We saw how Peyton um, reflected upon his difficulties early on as God's ordained means to achieve a greater purpose, to refine him, to stir the hearts of many others to be willing to endure through the same difficulties for the glory of God. And Peyton did not see his afflictions through a self-centered perspective. And I think this is the key difference that we have to grasp today. He didn't see his afflictions through a self-centered perspective, which only ever leads to despair. If you look at afflictions through a self-centered perspective, it will only lead you to despair. If you look at it through a God-centered perspective, which Peyton did, it allows the despair to be accompanied with hope and assurance. We don't miss the despair. We go through despair, but it allows the despair to be met with hope and assurance. Light and momentary afflictions, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, can only ever be considered light and momentary if we trust that there is an eternal weight of glory that they are achieving. If we don't have a God-centered perspective and believe that there is an eternal weight of glory that we are waiting for and that God is working out in his purpose, then they will not be light momentary afflictions. They will be devastating afflictions. They will be crippling afflictions. But if we actually believe that they are working in eternal weight of glory, they are light and momentary. We can say like Paul, convinced the sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed. Absolutely convinced they're not worthy to be compared. I'm waiting for this glory and I can persevere through anything. So you can only see that when you have the same eternal eyes that Paul describes and that Peyton lived out. And if it had not been for these afflictions and tremendous difficulties, Peyton would not have experienced the overwhelming comfort from God. Uh, in that same moment that Peyton was hiding out in a tree, he says, the hours I spent alone in the bush live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did the Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered amongst those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Saviour's spiritual presence, 
to enjoy his consoling fellowship. It surely confronts us, as I was reflecting upon this, it surely confronts us with the question as why we would be so inclined to avoid cost and sacrifice. Our inclination toward comfort in this day and age and our aversion to cost and sacrifice surely robs us of wonderfully intimate moments with our Saviour. We can't experience his comfort unless we need the comfort. If we comfort ourselves with materialistic comforts, we don't receive the comfort from the Lord as we should. Our aversion to that, our aversion to sacrifice robs us of the comfort that Peyton describes where he's in a tree, not sure if he's, this is the night that the Lord is going to take him because someone is going to shoot a musket at him. But he says, um, I would do it all again, gladly. The Lord spoke so tenderly to me in that moment. Very briefly, two applications for us. Uh, the first, we must recover a passion for God's glory among all peoples. We have to recover a passion for God's glory among all peoples. Peyton was totally consumed with a passion for God's glory among the unreached. Just absolutely consumed by it. That it didn't matter what kind of opposition he would persevere in obedience to Matthew 28, the great commission, go into the world, make disciples of all nations, which we understand as people groups, ethno-linguistic groups, which there are still uh, around 3,500, 3,000, something like that, people groups in the world that do not have a Christian witness established in their area. And in obedience to that commission, Peyton had a fire that neither the skepticism of comfortable middle-class people nor the threats of savages could extinguish. He had a passion that was just made him totally sold out to that. Uh, he says, let me record my immovable conviction that this is the noblest service, this service that he is doing, reaching the unreached peoples. This is the noblest service in which any human being can spend or be spent. And if God gave me back my life to be lived again, I would, without one quiver of hesitation, lay it on the altar to Christ, that he might use it as before in similar ministries of love, especially amongst those who have never heard the name of Jesus. May it please the Lord to turn the hearts of all my children to the mission field, and that he may open up their way and make it their pride and joy to live and die carrying Jesus and his gospel into the heart of the heathen world. We must recover that same passion, which is God's passion to be glorified in the salvation of all people groups. We know it's going to happen because Revelation tells us that this beautiful picture of heaven where he will be worshipped from every tribe, tongue and nation. And we are tasked with that commission. We receive that commission of going into all the world and making disciples. Uh, The last application for us, finally, we have to recover a godly patience in the ministry. We have to recover a patience in all that we do. Think about it. Surely after four years of nothing but death threats, you would think, this is not happening for me. God's not opening this door. Someone told me of a church planter that planted a church in Sydney and they had invested all this stuff into marketing and they only had a few people show up the first day and they said, all right, it's not working. 
just outrageous, like comically outrageous. It's just, but unfortunately, I mean, that's an extreme example, but do we have the kind of perseverance and patience to, to persevere through four years of nothing or more of nothing, but we know that what we are doing is faithful to the Lord. Uh, Peyton was patient in waiting for God's sovereign mercy. And I believe that Peyton had this patience both because of a supreme trust in God's sovereignty. He alone opens the hearts of people. We don't uh, rush that. But also because he had a right understanding of the task. So just as Peyton trusted that his life would not be handed over until God himself was calling him home, he also had a trust that God's mercy would be poured out at the God-ordained time whenever the Lord is pleased to do it. And Peyton also had a godly patience because he understood that his task was not simply conversions, but his task was discipleship, to make disciples, to make learners. And specifically by establishing healthy churches that would nourish disciples of Jesus. Our modern church culture is filled with this numerical fanaticism, like just fixated with numbers, quick results, which breeds impatience. Uh, It it just focuses upon more churches planted, uh, more people coming with no concern for disciples being made, for the health of people, um, the health of churches. And so where where there is little to no concern, for spiritual growth and the actual health of those members and where the task is understood purely as numerical multiplication, then there will be no patience because to sow into disciples, to make disciples requires patience. To sow into people, to make disciples requires patience. Jesus talks about this in the sow of the seed in the Gospel of Luke. And he says the seed on the good soil endures with patience. It's slow. You don't, you know, I'm no gardener, but I know if things sprout up quickly, it's probably not good. It takes a while for it to actually grow deep into the soil and then come up. And likewise, we actually, to make disciples, we have to be aware that it is a slow process. That's what we're called to do. So the Great Commission is not to go into the world um, get some hands raised and the Lord's Prayer prayed and move on. But make disciples, make learners, make people that will understand the teaching of the word um, and, and persevere in it. So when we rightly understand this under God's sovereign mercy, we will have patience in ministry. So those are the two applications. Uh, we recover a passion for God's glory among all peoples and we recover a godly patience in the ministry.